thank you for that kind welcome. It, it, it's, it's such a delight for me to uh, join my dear friends, Steve and, and, and Sam, here every year. Um, it's so kind of you to give me an opportunity to come and worship with you and share God's word. I want to bring you God's uh, I mean, uh, greetings from Westminster Seminary in California, uh, faculty and staff. We're so grateful for you. Uh, and the, the labors you're engaged in here. Um, often I get this question where uh, people ask me, so <clears throat> how are you doing um, with that quizzical look or are you doing okay uh, with this long pause wondering how things are going? And frankly speaking, for those of you who, who perhaps have new jobs, you have no idea how things are going. Um, School's open, uh, so that's a good thing, and you feel like, you know, things are happening as they are or should be, but you really don't know uh, how well you're doing. But I do know this, the Lord surrounded us with good faculty and good staff, and I get to work every single day there, and it's been a huge blessing. And the Lord's been reminding me and all of us that we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, people like you, uh, people like Pastor Steve who, who pray for us and encourage us along the way. So we're so grateful for you. Thank you for the opportunity for me to be here this morning. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer first, ask his guidance and his wisdom as we turn to his text. Thank you for inviting your sons and daughters into your house, O oh Lord, this morning. We want to hear you. Lord, open our eyes so that we may experience and know your presence among us. Open our ears so that we may hear your voice. Teach us, O oh Lord, so that it's not just something that we do intellectually thinking through these concepts, but Lord, that these things will be etched into our hearts, applied every single day to our lives. For that, Lord, we depend upon you. We lean upon the workings of the Spirit in our hearts. So for those of us who have been long Christians, teach us and disciple us to be that. For those of us, O oh Lord, who are seeking and do not know, Lord, by your Spirit's working, break down the hearts and the barriers therein for us to come before you in utter dependence so that your grace and your kindness may be seen and witnessed. For we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Last year, it's been a year of learning in many ways. And when people ask me, what have you learned this past year, there are a number of things that I can share, but there's one particular thing I want to share with you this morning. There was a book written recently and published called From Weakness to Strength by a pastor named Scott Sauls. And in this book, there was a foreword written by a person named Johnny Erickson Tata. For those of you who are aware of the evangelical scene, you may recall that name. Johnny Erickson Tata is actually a lady who is quadriplegic. So she has been wheelchair bound for many decades now, but yet the Lord has used her mightily to serve not only those who are disabled, but the greater church to understand what suffering is and how the Lord responds in the midst of our suffering. In this little foreword, she begins to talk about herself as a leader by default, is what she said. She then says, now if I were God, I would do it differently. I'll pick the smartest men and women to be on my strategy team. I would draft the world's sharpest millionaires to finance the operation. My public relations people would be the most effective communicators anywhere. Weak people need not apply. Those with physical defects, forget it. People who might slow down my progress, never. 
Thank the Lord that I am not running the world, she says. He is in charge, and he opens his arms to the weak and ungifted, the unlovely and unlikely. He opens his arms to sinners. It's because of his great love. It's also because this is the way God does things to bring maximum glory to himself, she said. Friends, God's church is full of leaders and believers who are here by default, not because they deserve to be here. Surprising people, unlikely people, accidental people in some ways, people who do not fit the model found in how to win friends and influence others, who perhaps may not be the most beautiful, smartest, successful people in the world. I, I realize that Crossway is an exception, uh, but that's not exactly how the Lord's church is, and that's not the people that the Lord calls to leadership. One thing that I've learned, and one thing I want to share with you, I think that you understand well, is the element of complete and utter dependence upon the Lord. And this is what the text drives us to consider as it talks about the desperate place of Jehoshaphat, the dependent prayer that he lifts up, and the promised deliverance that we witness. This was a time of Judah and Israel, for those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament. And Jehoshaphat, the king, is the king of Judah. Now, he was heralded and, and received well by many people. Part of the reason for that was because he was not only a good king, but he also was a godly king who sought to do the things that the Lord wanted him to do, getting rid of idols, turning the people to the Lord. But like any individual, there were compromises. And in fact, 1 Kings reminds us of Jehoshaphat. As good as he was, his life was full of compromises, those things that he considered to be absolutely necessary for him and his people, despite the fact that they're not ideal things. So the high places and idols still remained. His people followed after idols instead of God. These are all things that were characteristic of the people of this time, and not in many ways all that different from you and I. Even calling upon Jesus as Lord, many of us think, or at least believe practically, it's Jesus plus something else, fill in that blank, whatever that may be, that we require in our lives for us to carry on each and every single day. Now, this is the kind of person that Jehoshaphat was, and this is the kind of people that Judeans were during this time. What they're facing at this time was an obstacle that they felt were insurmountable. There was a coming invasion. It was a coalition, according to verse 1, composed of the Moabites, the Ammonites, as well as the Meunites. This was a massive army. And to point out how big this enemy was, the, the author repeats for us this phrase in verse 2, a great multitude. Verse 12, a great horde. Verse 15, a great horde. Verse 24, the horde. The point that he's trying to make is that the enemy was great and big. So big was this enemy that clearly the people of Judea and Jehoshaphat believed that they could not overcome this enemy because this is how he reacted in verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Jehoshaphat was afraid. Perhaps many of you identify with this fear. Uh, perhaps you have faced many things in your lives. I don't know you. You don't know me very much either. But human condition is such that many of us live through things in our lives where the obstacle or the wall be before us seem too insurmountable. 
It's beyond us is how we feel, whether it be relationships, your career, your children, or the future, the uncertainties and the blackness of what we face seem to be so great that if we're honest with one another, we're afraid, we're not sure uncertainties and insecurities surround us. Certainly, this is how the psalmist felt when he actually prayed, lifting up this prayer simply by saying, I lift up my eyes to the Lord, uh, to the hills. From where does my help come, is what he said. Now, this is not a unique feature of the Old Testament believers. In the New Testament, Paul, whom we idolize in many ways as a great theologian and a pastor, he himself talks about the difficulties of life on this side of glory. As he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in a moment of great honesty, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's how heavy he felt, that indeed the burdens were so great, the trials so insurmountable, the uncertainty so dark that he felt that it was beyond him that he had received the sentence of death. This is how the Israelites were as they stood afraid of the enemy coming before them. How did Jehoshaphat respond? Well, this is where we see him responding in ways that we ought to be emulating in verse 3 when we're told that Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now, fasting is not what I do regularly. Um, I'm not sure if you do. Uh, as you can tell, my shape does not allow for it uh, very much. But the first part is something that we should identify right away with, that he sought the Lord. And this seemed to have been a pattern because repeatedly over and over again in Second Chronicles, when Jehoshaphat and his people faced difficulties, we're told he sought after God. Another time we're told he inquired first of the Lord. And in fact, this is the pattern set before the people, not only by Jehoshaphat for himself to do, we're told in verse 4 that this is what the Israelites were used to doing, as we're told that Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. It begins with the phrase, seeking the Lord. The verse ends with the phrase, seeking the Lord, beginning and ending, all enveloping the verse to remind us that that's what we ought to do, to seek the Lord. In seeking God, what is recorded for us is a glimpse of the prayer life of Jehoshaphat. And we are told how he prayed, and that there are four particular points that I want to point to. I won't go through them in great detail, except to highlight the last one. But the first point is simply this. He recognized the very character of God and praised him for who he is. In particular, we are told that Jehoshaphat prayed a prayer of praise for God's power. Verse 6 says, In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. He's reminding everyone of who God is. The fact that God is powerful and mighty has been a repeated theme throughout this book, and it seems incredibly appropriate in light of the fact that the Judeans, along with Jehoshaphat, were feeling simply powerless against the horde that was coming after them. But it's not only a prayer of praise about God's power. We also see him praising God for his provisions, not only who God is, what God has done. 
Simply, God has kept his promises in the past. Israelites, like many of us, we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We give thanks to the Lord when he answers our prayers, but the next day, the day after, we forget what the Lord has done, often lifting up complaints as well as inquiries before the Lord because we forget that God had kept his promise. Israelites were the same. And so here, Jehoshaphat points out how God kept his promise. He delivered to them the promised land by driving out the inhabitants of the land, verse 7. He has kept his promise to multiply the descendants of Abraham, whom he remembers as God's friend, in verse 7. Moreover, he came near to them by making his dwelling among them in the temple that was built, according to verse 8. It's worth noting here that although we remember all these things as answered promises, which is good in and of itself, if you're a Judean or an Israelite, when you hear these things repeated by Jehoshaphat, you realize very important points in Israel's history. It reminds them of God's promise to Abraham to multiply. It reminds them of God's promise to Moses to create a new people. It reminds them of God's promise to David to build a temple where God can dwell in his home. These are pointing us back to very significant points in Israel's history in order to remind them that this is not just Jehoshaphat saying things for the sake of saying. These are things that are recorded in history that they have witnessed themselves before that God is the God who answers their prayers, and he keeps his promises. And then at this point, he makes specific and urgent plea. Verses 10 through 12, in particular, he says, O our God, verse 12 says, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Oftentimes, we struggle to know exactly what to pray, and we end up praying just simply generously, generally, nebulously, in the gray. But the Lord asks us to pray specifically and make inquiries before him, and this is his plea for help. I am desperate. Help us. And then he concludes his prayers with the fourth point, which is a confession of trust, the second half of verse 12 when he says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. On the one hand, even the first part is very hard for us, isn't it? Here, it's hard for us because we live in a generation of self-sufficiency and self-dependence. Independence is the marker that we seek, not depending on other people. So for us to even admit that we are helpless, hapless and dependent is difficult for you. For those of you who grew up or live in Orange County, this is even more difficult for us. Many of us are well-educated. Many of us have successful careers. Many of us have good groups of people surrounding us. Many of us have resources, whether financial or others, to buttress us in our daily claim that we can do this on our own. So even the admission by the Spirit's leading to be able to say, we do not know what to do is itself difficult. But the reminder to us is, frankly, whether you want to admit that or not, whether you're able to display that or not to other people, even though you don't show your cards, deepen your hearts to others, God knows you're weak. In your heart of hearts, you're insecure. In your heart of hearts, you're hiding sins from others that you know when discovered may be problematic. 
In your heart of hearts, instead of confidence, what you have is this lack of confidence about what you're doing, where you're going, where you're headed. Here, many of us struggle with the fact that we are not able, we do not know enough, we do not have enough experience or wisdom to carry on. It's in moments like that we're able to simply say, we do not know what to do. But yet, that's not where the prayer ends, because then prayer turns to simply say, but our eyes are on you. Eyes are on you. The plea is not for any particular action, but for God to show himself in providence and power. Having cried out in distress, Jehoshaphat simply trusts and he waits. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Can I share one thing with you? The third service here, having gone through two others, I'm not as uh, I'm oppressed by time. And so I feel like I can share some things that I would not otherwise. To share with you one, one particular thing, uh, last year has been an interesting learning experience for us, growing as a newbie, what this role looks like. But one thing I learned is that this is not a people-to-people, money-to-money, all those things are very significant things. But it's a principality versus principality at work. Church work is like that. Our lives are like that. School work is like that in many ways for us as well. Let me give you one example. Uh, The search committee that ultimately decided to ask me to step into this role was composed of four board members, three faculty members, and two VPs. And four of those board members were incredible supporters. Uh, Many were. Um, Two of those board members were heavy hitters on our board, people with great experience and resources, and I had told them from the beginning, I'm going to lean upon you a lot going forward for the next few years. And then I get a call from one of them in October. He tells me that he has pancreatic cancer, and he dies in 10 weeks. He was gone by December. And at the end of January, the wife of the other board member I get a call saying she has this severe flu, which none of us really get concerned over. About a week later, I get a text saying that she has double pneumonia. Soon after, I hear that she has sepsis. And a few days later, she has acute respiratory distress syndrome, and she died within two weeks. I mean, this is happening so fast for many of us, especially for me. Um, on a very personal level, the sadness of the human tragedy is one thing. Institutionally, it was one of those things that shocked us in many ways. And these are moments where you cannot help but to say, this is not, this is beyond us. This is a principality to principality thing taking place. And you cannot help but to say, we do not know what to do. (laughs) We do not know what to do. Whether it be your children, your marriage, your careers, or your church, whether it be your relationships, whether it be the work that you do, oftentimes we face a wall and we have a moment of clarity when we're tired, when we're weak, overwhelmed, and afraid. This is where we cannot help but to come before the Lord and simply confess and say, we do not know what to do. This is exactly what Apostle Paul experienced and having already described for us his predicament, he comes back to say in the same verse, but that, that is all the difficulties he faced, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. That but is so important. 
but on God. Because what we see here, in having come before God in this desperate prayer, we recognize this dependence is rewarded with the deliverance. I love this image of the people of God waiting on the Lord in verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. From the greatest to the weakest, from the oldest to the youngest, and and parents who are here, your kids learn much more from what you do than what you say. I think all of us can testify to that, right? They're like incredible sponges or videotapes who video record everything you do. When parents are self-sufficient, they learn self-sufficiency. When parents are dependent, they also learn dependence. And from top down, the whole nation gathered in dependence before the Lord. And as they sought the Lord, the word of the Lord came from an unexpected source, from a person named Jehaziel. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, and he declares the word of the Lord in verse 15 when he says this, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. In verse 17, it goes on to point out, You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm. Hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. It's amazing how this same theme is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Do not be afraid and dismayed because God is at war and he will be with you. The author of Chronicles is drawing a parallel with the writings in the book of Exodus when the Israelites were rescued from their bondage of slavery in Egypt. Do you remember what happened? We see this all the time. I realize that Universal Studios changed this where they used to have Moses dividing up the water. Do you remember this growing up? And then the tram will go through the divided water. That's how they recorded the Ten Commandments and Moses the movie. Now they have a different storyline for that tram ride going through where the water gets separated. What was remembered during that time was that Israelites, as they're coming out of Egypt, they were stuck between water and the enemy chasing them. Do you remember that scene in Exodus for those who are long believers? As they face the water before them, because walking in they will die, and as they face the enemy who are chasing to kill them, this is what Moses said to them in Exodus 14. Moses said to his people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." It's this play on what you see and what you don't see. What you see are obstacles and walls. What God sees is opportunities for him to show his power to you. And what he's reminding us is not to see as our eyes see, but to see as God sees. And we come before the Lord in dependence and saying, God, show us your deliverance and your salvation in our lives, in areas and places that are insurmountable for us with our own power, with our own knowledge and wisdom, which are so lacking. Friends, dependence on God is not a rejection of preparation. After all, the army was given orders which were followed strictly in verses 16 and 17 and 18, but it speaks of prior conviction and posture for us. 
in being told by the world over and over again that independence is the marker of our maturity. That is, when our child is able to tie her own shoes, he's able to bike on his own, she's able to drive on her own, that he's going off to college on his own, she gets a family of her own and buys her own home, are all milestones of independence. We think that that's what maturity looks like. But many of us who are aging... We recognize that from Scripture, the mark of maturity is complete reverse of what the world says. The more we age, the more we experience, the more we grow in knowledge, we come to recognize we don't know enough, we don't have enough experience, we don't have the strength on a daily basis to do what is necessary for our lives. Here, Dependence is about our prior conviction and commitment and posture. According to the Lord, dependence on him is greater in importance than any preparations for war or life. Whether it be gathering of men and women, strategic planning, or the assessment of enemy or its strength. Here, as Jehoshaphat declares in verse 20, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established, he said. This is so hard for us to not only believe, but to apply. Do you remember what happened? This is what it says in verse 24. When Judah came to the watchtower of wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Do you know why? Because the Lord, according to verse 22, set an ambush, and they all helped to destroy one another. The Judeans and Jehoshaphat along with them were witnessing what Peter in the New Testament referred to as, quote, the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. We oftentimes do not get to see the surprising and mighty hand of God because we're not seeing it nor seeking it. (laughs) We see the solutions in and of ourselves, but that's not what Paul said 2 Corinthians 1.9, in following up after his description of his difficulties, he goes on to say, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Who raises the dead. How powerful is God? He raises the dead. As he says in Colossians, talking about his ministry, the reason he toils and struggles every single day is because the work is being done not by him, but according to him, his energy that he powerfully works within me is what Paul says. And do you know what he says is that power? He goes on to point out in the next chapter, the faith in the powerful workings of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That power is at work in you, his sons and daughters. This is why we're able to say, echoing the words of Paul, simply saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? May I share with you one last illustration, and I'll end here. You know, I, my wife and I are not perfect parents, but... We do things and do our best. And maybe I've shared this with you before as well. We do things like this. We, we have a house for them um, and, and their bedrooms. 
Um, as, as a kid who grew up in a family of five, I've never had my own bedroom. And then I went to college, grad school, and then I got married. And so there's not really any time where I had a chance to experience having my own bedroom. My kids, two of them, have their own bedrooms. I mean, just on their own. They can do anything they want to it. We do things like this as well. We, we, we feed them every single day. Mostly three meals, maybe two, but quality meals every single day, right? There's never a meal that they miss, nor do they ever ask, Mom and Dad, how do you pay for this? Um, no, we, we, we never charge them. We're resentful at times. We never charge them, and then we pay for their meals as well. And you know what else we do? We, we drive them around everywhere. Um, it's like Uber service without getting paid, where we take them to school, we take them to their music classes, we take them to their athletic events, and somehow my daughter, who's now a teenager, has a social life of her own. We have to drive them everywhere. I can't wait for the day for her to start driving on her own. So we drive them everywhere. And they have never asked the question, how do you pay for gas, Dad? No, but we drive them. And, and, and things like this happen too. You know, they tell us, oh, my so-and-so friends have this. And we tell them, you know what, we can't really afford things like that. But as parents, it hurts us right here. And so what we do is we remember, write them down somewhere, and we try to save up as much as we can. And on a special occasion, whether it be their birthday or Christmas, we, we get these things for them. And we give it to them to see their bright, shining smiles when they play with it so happily for two or three days and break it afterwards and not to care anymore. But yet we do it anyways because we love seeing our kids be happy. Now, you would think what will happen at that point is, dad and mom, you're the best. There are no parents like you. We will dedicate our lives to obeying everything you want us to do. And we will ever remain grateful to you for all things said no kid ever. Not one. In fact, they complain, right? They seek other ways of solving their own problems and not recognizing the kind of blessings they have in their parents. Friends, that's okay for kids who are 2, 5, 10, 15 even. If we see that kind of attitude in adults, like many of us, who should know better? That's where the problem is. According to Paul, he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, why will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, is what Paul said. Here, friends, the Lord comes and reminds us that he's a promise-keeping God. He will provide, he will prevail, he will bring you home. And the attitude and the posture that you and I are to have is to come before him and acknowledge that we are nothing, completely and utterly dependent upon him by saying, we do not know what to do. We like to pretend like we know what to do, but we do not know what to do. And be able to come before him in all honesty, but our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. May the Lord bless you that you are able to say this prayer daily. We do not want, know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. And may the Lord bless you so that you may daily experience his loving kindness upon you, that you are able to sing his graces, lift up praises, and give thanksgiving to him, for he has been so good to us. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer.
We give thanks to you, O Lord, this morning for your steadfast love, for it endures forever. We are undeserving, we confess. Lord, many of us know the kind of lives that we led this past week. We also acknowledge, O Lord, no matter how we commit, this coming week, O Lord, we know that there will be moments where we walk far away from you rather than acknowledging you for who you are. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ who cleanses us of our sins and our rebellion against you so that we may come before you. Place on our lips by your spirit these prayers every day in being able to say, we do not know what to do. Our knowledge is insufficient. Our education is not enough. Whatever worldly successes we think we might have pale in comparison to who you are that we desire to simply say in complete dependence, we do not know what to do. But Lord, our eyes are on you who raised Jesus from the dead, whose power is powerfully at work in us. Allow us to see by the opening of our eyes the promising God who keeps his promise at work among us. We thank you. Use Crossway, O oh Lord, to direct people to the way of the cross daily, not only in Brand, Fullerton, but throughout Orange County and this world. Pray that you will keep the leaders faithful and focused upon you and all the members that are here, your sons, your sons and daughters. Draw them nearer to you for your glory and for your honor. For we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.